Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Chris Ferdinandi. Hey, everyone. It's the vanilla JavaScript guy. AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. It's SolderJS coming at you live. Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. It's the guy who knows the vanilla JS guy. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I'm the Solder JS guy. <laughs> Does anybody really know the Solder JS guy? Uh, I've I've heard oh. weird I've heard things. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and uh, this week we're talking to Nicholas Zakis. You want to say hi, hey, Nick? Yeah. Thanks for having me back. Can I call you Nick, or do you prefer Nicholas? I prefer Nicholas. Okay. Then I won't do it again. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash jsjabber. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Now, we had you on, what, like six months ago talking about ESLint and where that came from. And now we're talking about don't use JavaScript because that's totally appropriate for a JavaScript show, right? <laughs> so yeah, it's less, less about not using JavaScript and just about using it a bit less. Gotcha. Do you want to just give a little bit more context and, and kind of get us rolling? And I know Chris invited you, so he probably has other things to add on top of that. Sure. So... Six or seven years ago, I think the last major talk that I gave was called Enough with the JavaScript Already. And the point of the talk was that I was seeing a lot more of people just shoving everything into JavaScript because they wanted to write JavaScript and nothing else. So, hey, Nicholas, the, yeah. can I interrupt you and interject and ask you to do something? Um, Studies show that you're that typically we double the number of programmers every five years. So there's a really good chance that like people that are listening to the show, a lot of them haven't weren't around six. You said that was six or seven years ago you gave that talk. Yeah. So I think it would be interesting if while you're giving this sort of background, you also talked about what it, just the the whole environment six or seven years ago, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what was it like when the dinosaurs roamed the earth and were in charge of the <laughs> the, the knockout dinosaurs <laughs> roamed the earth? Well, you know, just to Joe's point, I mean, now we're seeing a major move toward uh, CSS and JS and, you know, a lot of other things like this. So, yeah, I, I think it's relevant now, but it was a problem back then. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'd like to say that the problem was just starting then, but I don't think that's actually true. I think it started prior to that. But to set the context of what was going on at that point in time, people were really all in on Backbone. Uh, and React was just kind of new. I think maybe had been out a year or two and was just starting to really gain a foothold. And so the first movement into Backbone was where a lot of developers became familiar with 
model view controller architecture, MVC. And so that step basically meant, okay, let's bring uh, the model, the view, and the controller all into JavaScript, uh, and then we'll do everything in our JavaScript. And we were running into a lot of situations where that wasn't working very well. So if you were to log into Facebook at that time, there was a likelihood that at least one time when you did that during a week, you were going to get a completely blank page uh, except for the little blue bar at the top. And that was because their JavaScript had failed and all of the UI was being rendered in JavaScript and therefore you got no UI and there was nothing you could do about it. I like Facebook so much, I think that would be an improvement. (laughs) (laughs) But they weren't the only ones who were having that problem. There was a lot of this that was going around. It was really the beginning of the let's load a completely blank page or as the lingo was at the time, the scaffold, uh, and then use JavaScript to fill in the spots on that page to build up the UI. And that works really great when everything works perfectly. But if anything went wrong, then you got a blank page. And that was starting to infest a lot of uh, the big applications on the internet. and when you would say to people, you know, maybe you should start pulling some of that stuff back out of the JavaScript and put it back in the page on the initial page load, you'd get a response like, why would you ever want to do that? Like, you should just make the JavaScript better. But that really doesn't work if the JavaScript fails to load or if there's an error or whatnot. And so I was having a lot of conversations with people Uh, about this and decided finally to just put together a talk to put all of my thoughts together. And so I gave that and got the response that you can probably imagine. There was a small group of people who were like, yeah, preach on, and a much larger group of people saying, you know, that you are the worst person in the history of the world and nobody should ever listen to you. But the overall point of the talk was that we have these three technologies that were designed to work together, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And each of them has strengths and each of them has weaknesses. And when you use them for their strengths, you actually build a much more robust front end than you do if you try to force everything into one. And so one of the big points was getting HTML and CSS out of the JavaScript back into the browser to let the browser do what it's good at. Uh, And there were, fortunately for me, a couple of case studies that came out at the time that backed that up, both Airbnb and Twitter, uh, not too long before I gave the talk for the first time, had actually gone back to doing an initial server rendering of the page, serving that, and then progressively enhancing that with JavaScript to get the dynamic interactions that they wanted. And they found that that actually sped up the user experience. And so I think since that time, we've still teetered back and forth between that, like, no, no, browsers are good enough that you can stick everything in JavaScript and get away with it, to, okay, let's do some server-side rendering, at least for that initial page load, uh, and then add in the JavaScript. And um, I'm just amazed that 
it's now six or seven years later and we're having the same conversations. Yeah, I just want to jump in here because I was going to ask about server-side rendering as you were talking because it seems like it's becoming more and more common. You know, we have shows on Angular, React, and Vue, and it seems like they're all kind of pushing people that way where you have some kind of server-rendered component, whether it's, you know, they render the React components on the back end and that, that way you just get the full-on HTML and then, yeah, it loads in the JavaScript on top of it to give it the functionality. So are, are we heading the right direction now then? Or are we still kind of, you know, out in la-la land and, and doing this the wrong way? Yeah, your summary statement was, you can't believe we're still having this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, because it is still a conversation that's going on. And it's great that the frameworks are kind of leading the charge on this now because initially frameworks were mostly silent. It was like, hey, we're staying out of this. You guys decide what you want to do. But getting the frameworks coming out and really pushing people to do this, I think, is a good step. Um, but we're not there yet. Like, there's still, I mean, there's barely a day that goes by that I don't load something into a browser that is blank initially and then loads a bunch of stuff. I mean, just in order to open up the link to get on this call, I went into Gmail and waited for 15 seconds on the icon. <sighs> I, there's so much I love about the new Gmail, but the load time on it is definitely not one of them. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to ask a couple of like interesting or, or questions here. They're going to sound like challenging questions, but I think it, it's good to uh, cover why you're taking this position and why this is worth talking about. So first off, what we're talking about is some of our code is failing, right? Or code is being incredibly slow. And so the discussion here is, well, let's have the server, you know, render out this initial parts and then let Java, you know, this progressive enhancement maybe type of thing. But if the there's JavaScript on the client side that's rendering stuff, code Instead, let's have, you know, Rails on the server or Java or .NET on the server or whatever on the server, render the stuff. Well, isn't that the same thing? I mean, it's still just code running at some point. If the code fails on the browser, why isn't the code failing on the server as well? And we're getting, it still is just the same issue. You can't avoid the fact that code is code and sometimes that code is going to fail. So why even bother? Why aren't we just talking about, well, make your code better? That's a really good question. And before I answer that, I want to explain that my position is not just based on code failing. It's also based on the entire life cycle of your product and application development. But we can get more into that later. But to your specific question, I think that there's a difference between shipping code out and running it on somebody's computer where you don't know really like what their processor is, their operating system is, what sort of corporate IT policy is being enforced. That one is huge, by the way. I used to work at a company with like a JavaScript whitelist and so many sites just didn't work for me when I was there. What is a JavaScript whitelist? They only allow JavaScript from certain, um, I think it was like trusted domains maybe to run. So... I get all these sites where either nothing would run or the page would load, but the entire nav was hidden behind one of those expand collapse menus and that wouldn't open. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was, wow, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds rough. 
Yeah, they had had like kind of a security incident like a few months before that. And so they started putting in place some really strict web policies to prevent issues from happening in the future. Um, so that was, that was one of them. That was, that was great. So yeah, how would that even work with HTTPS? Well, you yeah, I don't know. There wasn't a, the back in that, at that point, there wasn't, a, not that HTTPS didn't exist, but there wasn't this push for SSL, all the things like there is today. Oh, okay. Well, even then you can just block on the URL as well. Well, you can't with HTTPS because you don't see the URL. If you're in the firewall and all the traffic is throwing, flowing through their firewall at some point, don't you? I, I don't want to get us off on, a, on that tangent, yeah. but that's <laughs> okay. Well, in, in any event, the last time I was on, we talked about when I was working at Box and a, a customer was saying that basically nothing was working. They were using IE7, which is kind of beside the point because our app did work in IE7. But what happened was they had a, an IT policy that blocked ActiveX objects and XML HTTP request was just a wrapper around ActiveX objects in IE7. So you turn off ActiveX you turn off XML HTTP request and nothing works. So the real problem is that as opposed to the server, which is an environment that you've built, you control, um, you have logging on it, you can figure out when there are errors pretty easily. When you're shipping code out to somebody else, you're hoping that it's going to work. You don't know for sure. And our technology is good enough now that most of the time it actually does work, which is awesome, but it doesn't work 100% of the time. And you might never know why. Like uh, Another example, when I was at Yahoo and we were working on uh, getting the new Yahoo homepage to come out, we started getting some feedback that people were getting uh, not a completely blank page, but an almost completely unstyled page. So it was really hard to use because things were just all over the place. So like some of the CSS was loaded, but not all of it. So it wasn't even just like, oh, no CSS, so you can read it top to bottom. It was like partially there. And what it turned out to be was that uh, one of the browser ad blocker extensions was really dumb and was basically just blocking all URLs that had the word ads in it, ADS, no matter where in the URL it was. <laughs> and so that blocked uh, part of our CSS and all of our JavaScript. And I don't know what to say when I hear a story like that. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and it took a really long time to figure out exactly what was going on there too. And, and that's part of the problem when, again, you're shipping code out to somebody else, unless they're sitting right next to you at some point, are you going to know, hey, my code didn't get there, my code didn't run correctly, my code ran and there was an error, my code ran, but the result wasn't what I expected for some reason. And as, as opposed to you know, your own server, you can control a lot of stuff. It's really a, a much more fragile environment to run code. So... Nicholas, you talked of, of, through a few different scenarios of why things can fail on the client side. And even though we could attack each of these stories and talk about you know, foolish companies and poor policies and stuff like that, after you get through enough of these stories, you start to get the understand, I'm sure that you experienced this, and that's why you're bringing this up, is that you can only complain about everybody else so often 
but eventually either you solve their problems that they have or else you're not solving their problems and you're missing out on opportunities in business. Is that, I guess that's kind of where you're heading with this, right? Right, exactly. So is that still as true today with, with, you know, many of those problems that, you know, I can only imagine what it might be like for certain companies to say, well, let's make sure that our app runs if there is no JavaScript. In today's world, that I think a lot of companies would kind of say, you know, we really either couldn't or the work just just too much. So what, where, where can we go with this? And maybe I cut you off in the middle and you had more to say before we move on to a new question. No, that's, I'm ready to move on to that. Yeah, I think that has been the pushback against progressive enhancement from the start is like, well, look, that's going to be a lot of extra work. We don't have the time to do that. We got features to build. Um, It's a lot harder to do. And I think in some cases, that is correct. Like There are going to be some applications that are just not going to be usable or useful unless you're able to get your JavaScript running in the client. Like if you are going to be implementing Photoshop in a web browser, chances are you're going to need JavaScript for that. My pushback is more on starting from a position that I need to load in my favorite framework. I need to start building stuff in JavaScript right from the beginning instead of figuring out what the layers are that you're building. Like, what is the base that you can get out to everybody that doesn't need JavaScript? And hey, maybe that base is just a page that says, hey, you know, sorry about this, but you really need JavaScript to run. Here's uh, some documentation about how you can possibly enable it or try something else or whatnot. And that might be all that you can give, but at least you have something there. But at the next layer, Uh, Like if you are building what's uh, mostly a content site, can you start there with just your HTML and your CSS and then see where you can add JavaScript onto it to improve the experience? Like there's nothing that I hate more than going to a content site and waiting for JavaScript to load before I can read. I really love that. I know Chris has thoughts on this too, but when we did the episode on Jamstack, that, that really kind of pushed me over the edge there and made me think deeply about, okay, yeah, you know, because our site's a content set, right? And so the only JavaScript we're really loading in is like an audio player and, you know, maybe some analytics tracking and our comment system is discussed. So that also uses JavaScript. But there's no reason why the rest of it can't just, you know, come in as pure straight up HTML. And then, yeah, I can layer in the handful of things that I need that I can't really do with just static HTML. Even the audio player can be enhanced, right? So that could be a download an MP3 file link that gets built up into a, a proper player once the JavaScript kind of boots in. Yeah. yeah, you can put an audio tag in and it, you know, it, it is just HTML. But mm-hmm. yeah, sometimes you want a few nicer features and you enhance that with JavaScript. But in the meantime, you can play it on just the regular audio player. We had, um, we had was it, Keith from GitHub on a few weeks back and... Uh, I remember him talking about how um, pretty much their whole site is like built in that kind of way. Um, even though you think about them as kind of an interactive, I understand it's, a lot of it is just kind of content consumption, but it is in some way an app because you're, you're kind of 
you know, leaving comments and interacting and things like that. And so basically the way they, from what I recall, the way they have their setup is almost everything you want to do there can be done through old school form submissions to the server. And then when the JavaScript loads in, it takes over and does it in an Ajaxy way. So stuff becomes a lot faster and they layer in some nicer features, like, you know, being able to leave reactions to comments and things like that. But all of those like core things you want to do, you can still do even if the JavaScript fails. And I thought that was a really nice way to kind of approach it. Yeah. And that's the traditional progressive enhancement way of building things that we seem to keep going through phases of like, as a web dev community, we love it, we hate it. We love it, we hate it. Um, But at the end of the day, it still works. And really, as you were saying, you can layer JavaScript on top of something that's already working to make it faster or more convenient. That's great. But if you can make it work even without, that's better because you have a lot more opportunities to serve your customer. Again, when I was back at Yahoo and we were working on that new front page, uh, basically the whole thing would render on the server and then we would progressively enhance with JavaScript to the point where like, we even had tabs in certain modules that when you clicked, it would reload the whole page with that next tab highlighted. Like everything worked except for um, we had a bunch of like pop-up overlays that could give you even more information. So that wasn't there. Uh, the autocomplete on the search box wasn't there, but the search itself would work. And the thing that frustrates me a little bit about now that we're, again, like seven years from when I was first talking about this topic is HTML and CSS have come so far in that time that you can probably do more than you think with just HTML and CSS than you could before. So like going back to your GitHub example, I think there was uh, either an article or they released something a couple of weeks ago. The details element, right? Where, yeah, where they have a modal dialogue opening uh, just by using a details element, which is brilliant. And the same for dropdown menus, which is just using this native HTML element that happens to have show hide capabilities built into it to show hide different types of content. I mean, that's really creative. And on unsupported browsers, you just see the content by default because, you know, HTML fails so, so beautifully when it doesn't, doesn't work or isn't supported. Right. And I, I think that's actually a good point to emphasize for just a second, is that of the three technologies, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, HTML and CSS have error recovery mechanisms built into them. So their main goal is to make sure that something useful ends up getting out to the user uh, no matter what. So like they can recover from syntax errors. Um, they can recover from like properties that aren't uh, in CSS, properties that are non-standard, and HTML attributes and tags that are non-standard. They're really robust. And then JavaScript, you know, you forget to put a comma somewhere and it doesn't work at all. So I think that's actually a benefit, not a detriment. And I really hate that HTML4 didn't catch on because we have really crappy, sucky, impossible to parse HTML because they're like, oh, well, you know, you don't need to learn how to do HTML. We'll just make something fit on the screen, even if it's different in every browser and every implementation interprets all your mistakes a different way. 
Well, so the the point of that is that the the HTML and the CSS are created for the benefit of the consumer, not for the developer. Wouldn't it be best for the consumer if the developer knew right away that their crap was broken? Well, again, because you're transmitting bytes over a wire, you don't know that what you sent is going to be what arrives. The the connection could drop midway. And so we kind of as a web development community did this experiment. It was called XHTML, which was HTML parsed with strict XML definitions. So if anything was wrong, it failed. And that experiment failed because it was popping up scary error messages to end users. And nobody wants that. We want to be able to get something as good as possible to the end users and not scare them with awful error messages. We should write correct code. I mean, this, this is the same problem we have in JavaScript, right? Where you know, we don't put an error check, but then we find out way, way late. Like the sooner you can let the developer know, hey, you screwed up. You know, that's the whole point of ESLint and all these tools is to help us so we don't screw up so that our end users don't just get something that's okay. They get something that's exact. Right. So the thing is the bytes that you're sending over the wire might not all get there. So that isn't necessarily the developer's fault. And because we do have tools that we can run to validate that what I'm writing on my machine right now is coming out correctly. Like HTML validators have existed since HTML first came out. I mean, nobody was really using them for a long time, but they did exist. They still do exist. And of course, our tooling is a lot better now. But none of that really helps you if the connection gets dropped halfway through or somebody is in a remote area of the country on a mobile phone and they're just not getting great connection. I wanted to add, like, probably, I don't know, five minutes ago or so, we were talking a little bit about CSS and I don't know, not so much at the moment right now, since I'm doing more infrastructure SRE work, but. Over the past like two years, I've really tried to like champion um, just modern CSS and everything that's coming out with CSS. And so I just wanted to speak up to our conversation for users who or listeners who maybe aren't aware. Um, like we've done episodes on the past about this. I think we talked to somebody over at Microsoft, but um, there's so many things out there right now that just not only I think is it going to be easier to maintain if you do things in CSS that you previously had to do in JavaScript, because if you do it in CSS, you probably don't need to have tests for it and that sort of thing. But also the browsers are optimized now so that if you're writing it in C, uh, if you're writing CSS instead of JavaScript, it's going to be faster for your users. My uh, my favorite example of that is uh, I just recently learned that browsers can natively do smooth scrolling with a couple of CSS properties. So I have this my most popular JavaScript plugin. It's it's a lot of bytes and a lot of calculations to make it all work, and I can do the same thing with like four or five lines of CSS, including disabling the thing if someone has um, kind of motion reduced motion preferences turned on. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's cool. It's, I, I mean, I, amazing feature. I bring this up too, because I was definitely one of those developers when I was at Warner Brothers. Um, like there's multiple ways you can skin the cat. You can definitely do it in JavaScript. And that was always a tool I reached for until some, um, I would say designers who had way more experience than I did kind of showed me how to do it in CSS. And I had to uh, swallow my pride a little bit and be like, wow, this is definitely 
way less code. I don't need to write tests for it. So this is the way to go. And it's better for the users. Mm -hmm. The one caveat here is there are definitely like every now and then I see these like how to do X without JavaScript at all. And every now and then you look at the kind of the proposed solutions. I think about like um, drop down menus that are CSS only and they use um, like the uh, like the active pseudo selector to kind of make this stuff work. Um, a lot of times those end up being um, inaccessible because of the way they're implemented. So JavaScript isn't always a terrible thing. But um, but yeah, I think your ultimate point stands Amy, which is that, you know, often CSS is the better choice for stuff you're trying to accomplish. And Not always the choice we want, but. <laughs> well, it makes a lot of sense depending on the context. Like if I'm writing a web application, then it's kind of okay if Gmail just fails to load entirely because it's not like there's any relevant content that I can use if there's no JavaScript, unless it's just going back to pure forms, right? But if I'm looking at a news site or I'm looking at a PR release for a company, like that should freaking load. Yeah, I think that was a point that Nicholas was making earlier, right? That's just straight up content. There's no functionality to it that adds oh, much value to it unless you're talking about like graphs or charts or something. But yeah, for the most part, if the value is the content that's in text or something, yeah, it should just load na naturally and natively, regardless of my status with JavaScript. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there are different, I think, layers of applications where you go, like at the, the lowest layer is obviously the content sites and the, the highest layer are like the, um, really, I always go back to, uh, anything that is related to editing graphics in any way, because there's really just no way to do that without JavaScript. But my experience has been that no matter what you're building, if you start by saying, uh, okay, what is the thing that everybody can get? And then what's like the next layer of things that people can get when they have more capabilities uh, built into their browser and keep building up like that? you end up building a more robust application overall, regardless of what it is that you're building. So the way I concluded the talk was, you know, go as far as you can in HTML. And when you absolutely can't do stuff in HTML anymore, then you bring in the CSS. And when you absolutely can't do stuff in CSS, then you go into the JavaScript. And again, not at all saying that JavaScript is bad. I love JavaScript. It's allowed me to have a great career. It's just there are tools that can be more appropriate than immediately going into JavaScript. And uh, if we take a, a little bit further look back into the past, when JavaScript was first created, there were two primary things that it was being used for, which was form validation before submitting to a form, submitting a form to the server, and then hover effects. So if you had an image and you wanted to move your cursor over that image and have it change to something else, like that was a highlight effect that you could do with JavaScript. Those are the first two things that I did with JavaScript. And both of those use cases are now 100% solved with just HTML and CSS. I love what you're saying because I think, I don't know, a lot of times developers, we tend to I don't know. I see a lot of times we kind of like over-architect our solutions. I think sometimes to, I don't know, like, I don't know if it's to, I'm trying to figure out the right way to say this. I don't know if it's to like impress coworkers or satisfy our own curiosity. 
but the maintainability of the system over time is going to be so much better if you go with the simplest solution. Yeah, I've seen that in my career too. And the way that I've generally explained it to people is that when smart people get bored, they take simple problems and make them into more complex problems because that's more fun to solve. Ever. I mean, yeah, I mean, and that's totally it. Love that statement. Well, I think too, it's, I don't know, like a lot of us have to keep in mind that we are working for an organization usually. And and that's like, you know, our day-to-day job. And that's the time when we kind of have a responsibility to our employer to pick that simple solution that's going to be maintainable. But in our free time is kind of our opportunity to go play with the things that are going to, you know, pique our interest and help us learn and grow and that sort of thing. So one other thing that I think is somewhat related to this, and, and it may just go back to, you know, do server-side rendering, rendering and then it doesn't matter. But, you know, I see a lot of the HTML and CSS being managed by systems like Vue or Angular or React, you know, where you get JSX and, you know, you kind of have it all in one file, which is really nice because then all the concerns are together. But then you have JavaScript basically managing your HTML and CSS. So, you know, it, are, are these frameworks kind of leading us down the wrong path here? Or is this more of an answer of, you know, have your server-side rendering, make sure it works, and then, and then this stuff layers on and it's not a big deal? Yeah, I think that there is, um, there's a lot of value in how you end up managing each of the different layers. Like ultimately, when you end up putting your CSS and HTML into these components, whether they're Vue or React or just vanilla web components, the big benefit to developers is having that stuff co-located. Things that are related to each other stay close to each other. And that brings a lot of um, maintenance benefit over the long term. You don't have to go hunting and searching for stuff. And it is the case that when that when that ends up getting to the client, it gets managed in JavaScript. But to your point, there's no reason that that also can't be managed on the server so that you're generating something useful uh, in terms of HTML and CSS and sending it immediately down to the browser right off the bat. And so I've often so- wondered if build tools like ahead of time could take care of a lot of this stuff for us. Well, they can and they are. I mean, that's part of what we're seeing now with the server-side rendering. So I, I think it's important to distinguish between how the source code is managed versus how it ends up being delivered to the end user. Because like, you could just take a view component, which is all nice in one file, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, um, and output HTML, CSS, and JavaScript as separate files and send that down to the browser. Or you could compile them all into JavaScript and send that down to the browser. And I think that that's an important distinction because, uh, and I'm a very big fan of Vue, which is why I'm focusing on that. I, I think that that gives us a lot more options for building different types of tooling to accomplish different ways of delivering that content to the user. I'm 
less of a fan of their React way of creating a JavaScript file that has everything in there because I generally feel like anytime you're touching JavaScript, you need to be more careful than if you're touching HTML and CSS. Because of all the reasons we talked about before, error recovery and so on. And so the view approach of sticking stuff into a view file and then being able to pluck out the individual CSS, JavaScript, and HTML, I see as going more towards what is my ideal, which is mostly keeping those three layers separate versus the React way of putting all of it into JavaScript and manipulating it into more JavaScript, if that makes sense. It makes sense to me. One other thing that I'm wondering about here is um, it sounds like this is really just a conversation on what happens in the browser. So I just want to clarify or let you clarify, you know, we're not talking here about build steps where, you know, using something like less or SAS or SCSS to build those out or anything like that, or, you know, whatever you're building to, to render things from the server to the browser. Uh, what we're talking about here specifically is that you want to use the the capabilities that are at the um, lowest level possible that are natural to the browser. Yep, that's exactly it, is let each of those languages get to the browser and do what they are good at. I really like the approach, but it feels like in a lot of ways, yeah, we're, we're kind of not encouraged to go this way. So, and it's, it's another thing too, to build an app in this manner instead of maybe having, you know, having a system that's already in place that has some of these problems, you know, going back and fixing them. Do you, do you have a particular method that you like to use when building a Greenfield app? And then do you have a method that you like to use for identifying areas where you can do this in an existing app? Yeah. So for Greenfield, starting from scratch, you have nothing that you have to worry about. I always start with HTML 100% of the time, lay out my page, make sure the semantics are correct. And then I almost universally just start by making sure that I can get the server to render just that HTML. That is always the first thing that I quote unquote ship. And usually it's you know, behind a firewall, like nobody can get it outside of the network. It's just, I want to make sure that there is a system that can deliver bytes to a browser and render something correctly. And then I go to the CSS and get it looking the way that I want. And then I ask, okay, what are either the interactions that are not possible right now or are the interactions that I need to be planning for going forward. And then I start to think about what sort of JavaScript do I need? Like, do I just need vanilla JavaScript at this point? Because what we're building is not well-defined. So when I went off to try to start a company with some friends a few years ago, it was called Well Furnished, which was basically a, a furniture search engine, matching engine kind of thing. Uh, you've never heard of it because it didn't get very far. But I mean, it was, I think it was six or eight months down the road before I added 
the first piece of JavaScript to that page because of a new feature that we added. I didn't worry when I was building it initially what JavaScript framework to use because you literally didn't know what sort of interactivity we were going to be having on that application. So I put that off until we finally had some interactivity that I couldn't do without JavaScript. And I ended up just doing that as vanilla JavaScript because it was just one widget on a page. And um, vanilla JS is awesome, of course. Yeah. It's my uh, favorite framework. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and then I, ad- I added a second widget, which was also just vanilla JS. And we never actually got to the point where I needed to add in a framework because then the company went under and we stopped building it. But that's the general approach uh, that I use for all the projects that I work on is let's get the HTML working and shipped, style it, and then let's see what direction to go in. Because depending on what the interactions end up being, you might find that one framework is better for you than another is. And uh, I don't think it makes a lot of sense to upfront say like, I'm a Vue developer, so obviously everything I build from this point forward is going to use Vue, or I'm a React developer, so everything that I build from this point forward will be in React. But I'm a JavaScript developer, so everything that I build from this point forward... Yes. Well, uh, are you guys familiar with Atwood's Law? I am, thanks to your presentation. I definitely am. (laughs) Yeah, so Jeff Atwood said in 2007... Basically, anything that can be written in JavaScript will eventually be written in JavaScript. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've done that. Yeah. Like Windows XP? Yeah. Hasn't that been done? I'm pretty sure it has. It has been done. Yep, and awesomely. Yeah. So so the other part of my question then is, let's say that Nicholas tomorrow inherits React app or a Vue app or an Angular app, and you, you know, where do you start looking for places where you can optimize things this way so that they have, you know, a better, cleaner, nicer, more maintainable experience for both developers and for users. Yep. And this was actually what happened to me when I joined Box um, initially, was that they had created this kind of homegrown MVC client-side framework that wasn't scaling very well. And so I joined to help figure out how to make that better. And it was basically exactly the constraints that we're talking about, which was like the one thing that you cannot do is rewrite this application from scratch. You are not allowed to do that. So given that you are not allowed to do that, how can you make this better for developers, make it more robust for our customers, have fewer errors and stuff like that? And so the the most important place to start with that are where are the pain points? What are the problems that are front of mind for both the developers who are working on it and also the customers who are using it? And so one of the first things that I did when I got there was, well, I first had to identify everybody that was writing front-end code um, because they were all kind of dispersed on different teams and then got everybody into a room and did one of those exercises where you ask people to take post-it notes and everybody writes down things that are going well and you know, basically things that are going well enough that we shouldn't be looking at them, um, things that are severe problems that need to be addressed as quickly as possible, and things that are you know, minor issues that would be nice to 
get addressed. But if we don't get to them immediately, it's not the end of the world. And just kind of got the, the knowledge of the masses all together in one spot so we could figure out what the biggest pain points were. And then also talk to the product managers to find out you know, what were the biggest complaints that were coming in from customers. And from that baseline, you can figure out where to go from there. And whether that is, okay, we need to figure out a way to allow new development to be better than what we're doing right now, um, which actually ended up being one of the uh, big things that came up through talking to the developers at Box was everything is so fragile that creating any new functionality is very slow. And that means we can't keep up with competitors. That means that developers are getting burned out, building what should be simple new features. That's the thing that we have to address. So, okay, how do we address that? Well, the easiest way to do that is to introduce a new framework that can exist along the old, alongside the old one uh, and use that to build new features. And then you can go down the path of, well, what should that new framework be? At the time, my choice was to build a new custom framework, which uh, always sounds insane to people. But the fact of the matter is uh, I had been building frameworks for multiple years at that point. And in my consulting business, I often went and helped uh, individual companies create like very small, very purposeful frameworks that just help them organize their code better and could work alongside anything else. And you know, today, maybe that choice would be let's add in React. Maybe that choice would be let's add in Vue because we can use those both in addition to whatever is there. Or maybe the real problem is that our JavaScript is really fragile and we bundle everything into our JavaScript and that means that the user experience is broken a lot of the time, maybe the first step is, well, let's invest in some tooling to be able to start pull out some of that HTML, some of that CSS from the code that we already have and just deliver it in a different way. So it really is one of those uh, questions that the only accurate answer is it depends. But I think there are a lot of ways that you can start to slice into that large problem of refactoring and extending a legacy app uh, without needing to start from scratch. I like it. Anyone have anything else they want to bring up or any aspects of this that we haven't talked about, Nicholas, that we should? Well, I think one thing that I wanted to bring up is, is just some numbers because I think that helps to place everything in context. When I gave my Enough with the JavaScript already talk, again, six or seven years ago, I had some numbers in my slides that showed how much JavaScript was being delivered to clients. And I got that from the HTTP archive, which is a, a great resource for monitoring all kinds of trends of how web applications are built over time. And in 2014, HTTP Archive was reporting that the average of the measurements that they were taking was that we were sending uh, about 224 kilobytes of gzipped JavaScript 
to desktop clients per application. And again, this is on like initial page load to get everything working, not including things that might be loaded once people are interacting with the application. So 224 kilobytes uh, for desktop and 140 kilobytes for mobile. And, uh, oh, nope, sorry, I'm scribbling. I see my note I had scribbled here. This was in 2014, just to be more accurate. 2019, the uh, same measurements, desktop JavaScript is now basically 400 kilobytes. And on mobile, it's 360 kilobytes. And those are gzipped values. So, so they can't even get smaller than that. Like that's, oof. yeah. And so, if you consider that these are gzipped, most of the time we are sending a megabyte of JavaScript or more into the browser to be executed and deliver the user experience right off the bat. And that seems like a trend that isn't sustainable going forward. Because really, in the course of five years, those numbers have doubled both for desktop and mobile. Um, and that's while the browser has become more capable, not less capable. You know, we, we don't have to be shipping out things like date pickers anymore, but yet we're still adding more JavaScript. So it seems like there's an opportunity there to start figuring out um, better ways of doing this. And I hope that everybody will join in on that adventure. Very cool. I'm going to push us to picks, but before we do that, Nicholas, if people want to find you online, see what you're working on or thinking about these days, where do they go? Yep. Uh, my website is humanwhocodes.com and my Twitter is SlickNet. And uh, that's where you should head over to both of those two spots to see what I'm working on. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. All right. Well, um, let's go ahead and do some picks. Chris, do you want to start us with picks? Yeah, absolutely. Two for me today, only one of them developer related. Um, so the first is I wanted to give a shout out to GitHub Actions. It's this newish feature they rolled out. I don't know if it's out of beta yet or not. I had applied for an invite a while ago and finally got one. But my big motivation was that I maintain several dozen open source projects and People always want me to put them up on NPM, and I never do because for me, NPM publish as an additional step after you know pushing and merging and running my CI build and then updating tag versions. Just it's a step that I always forget, and so I've just as a policy decided I'm just not going to bother because it's another thing that I get issues about. And um, 
Uh, GitHub Actions provides you with a way to create these little integration hooks that happen when things happen. So um, I can now set up all my GitHub repositories to automatically publish an updated version to NPM whenever I release a new kind of versioned, or uh, whenever I kind of push, uh, push to my GitHub repository with a new version. So I set that up on all of my bigger projects and um, it's, uh, it's been really, really awesome. People who use this stuff are happy now because it's all on NPM and I'm happy because I don't have to think about it. So um, whoever at GitHub was the team that built that feature, it is amazing. I absolutely love it. Thank you so much. And if you haven't checked that out yet and you use GitHub for stuff, I would, uh, I would highly recommend it. It's a, just a really, really cool thing. I'm just looking now. It is still in beta, but you can sign up. You pop in your email address or you, you attach it to your account. And uh, I think it took me like a month, month and a half to get access, but it's super awesome. So go sign up today if you haven't. The second pick for me, and this is more just kind of on the um, personal entertainment front, um, I just started watching The Umbrella Academy on Netflix. Um, I was a little skeptical because the name is kind of weird, but... It is a really, really well done show if you enjoy post-apocalyptic sci-fi, superhero stuff, comic book stuff, um, like drama-based television. It's just it's one of the better shows that I've watched in a long time. And I'm really hooked and I probably watch too much TV, but it's, uh, it's awesome and I'd highly recommend it. Nice. AJ, what are your picks? Okay, so we've got two of them today. One of which is Jurassic Park. And I like Jurassic Park for a number of reasons. One, it is just the pinnacle of practical effects in a movie. It's the right mixture of CGI and practical effects in a way that, that blends pretty well. And I would say is timeless. Like it holds in a way that other movies don't hold. You can't tell that the raptors aren't real half the time. The big long neck dinosaurs at the beginning, I can't remember if they're brontosauruses or brachiosauruses because they talk about that in the movie, but those don't look quite super real. But, you know, the other stuff, they just did such an amazing job of not making it all about what the computer could do, even though computers were just starting to get to that point where they could. Okay, so that's, that's on the technical basis. I just think that it is extremely well done. Also, Hell yeah. there's, there's a focus on the plot and I don't feel like there's any racism or sexism or reverse racism or reverse sexism in the movie at all. And I could be, you know, wrong about that. But in, in, in terms of like, there is a lead character who is a woman who is not sexualized, who doesn't wear heels and who plays an important role in the movie. And I think that that, it's not that I, I'm going to say this and it's going to sound wrong. It's not that I personally care about that. It's that, that, doing it that way adds to a better movie and I like that it adds to being a better movie. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not going to go into the moral political rabbit hole on it, but I think that doing it that way made it a great movie. And then of course, you know, it's dinosaurs. Who doesn't love dinosaurs? So that's, I mean, that's just an important point. And the catchphrase, this is a Unix system. I know this. I mean, that's <laughs> Iconic. Iconic. Yeah. And then while I'm throwing that in there, I think I'm also going to pick Terminator 2 as a pretty darn good movie. I watched it on VidAngel where it cuts out like, well, about a third of the soundtrack because it's just all F-bombs and other bombs and stuff that I didn't really care to have in my home. But the movie itself, I think, was actually pretty cool. And I can see how it was a game changer in, in the way that movies were made and had a lot of influence on movies that followed it. So I have a lot of respect for, for T2, as it were. And then uh, that wasn't actually going to be a pick. That's just because 
in the realm of thinking about that time frame and, and movies that were good. But my second pick is going to be a little bit of handy dandy E6000. It is not anywhere near as good as epoxy, but sometimes people use it in place of epoxy because, well, it's handy and dandy and it holds stuff together pretty well and it's flexible. So it has, uh, it has some give to it if you need what you're joining to have give. Like for example, wires on a circuit board, if you want to glue them in place so that you don't rip out solder pads but have it be flexible so that you can move the wires back and forth and you don't really care that it melts if the circuit gets hot and not like it's going to run over the whole board, but you know, it, it'll, it'll just kind of melt a little and when it cools, it'll dry a little again, but it, uh, it's got a nice smell to it. It reminds me of crafts in my grandma's house, probably not really a nice smell, but it's some good stuff. So the next time you go reaching for super glue, don't cause it's stupid. And I've never had super glue work on anything like ever. And epoxy is sometimes a little over the top. E6000 might do the job for you. And does anybody know the non-brand name of E6000? I don't know what it's called generically. No. All right, Amy, do you have some picks for us? I do. I have a couple. I've been trying to decide which ones. Um, The first one, I'm going to do a fun one. So I probably posted this on Twitter a couple weeks ago. But I bought some lifting shoes, which just means, like, they're not really for, um, like, deadlifts or anything like that. But you use them on squats, and they're flat. And so they just kind of keep you, like, pressed down to the ground a little bit better. And so if you're lifting, like, we're not talking, like, three sets of 15 kind of reps. But if you're trying to max out or just do heavier weight, uh, I would highly recommend these. Someone said for the longest time to get them, but they're pretty expensive. And so... I avoided doing it, but then I finally just bit the bullet and bought them. My cat's on a scratching post right now, and he's really loud, so sorry about the noise in the background. Anyways, but I'll put a link to those. I specifically bought the Reebok lifters, and it was really difficult, actually, to find these in a women's version, so I ordered them. They have them on Reeboks.com. I found them on Amazon for slightly cheaper. So that'll be my fun pick. And then maybe a more programming-related one, but not so much technical, is a guide to equity compensation that someone provided me that was pretty good. So a lot of this stuff, you know, I feel like no matter what startup you go to, you're probably going to get some kind of equity And it helps to kind of understand how to go about that if you stay, if you leave, um, just all the details surrounding that. So that's going to be my other pick. And I apologize again. I'm like sick for two weeks in a row here. So I keep like clearing my throat. I'm sorry. I really want to check out that equity compensation thing. It's very long, but it's very good. Yeah. Well, not that I ever plan to work work at another company that's not mine, but... (laughs) (laughs) Who knows where DevChat will wind up. Anyway, uh, Joe, what are your picks? All right. Um, I think I'm just going to go with one pick today. Uh, actually, I'm going to go with two picks today. So my first pick is a series of novels. Way back in the day, like, I don't know, eight years ago, there was a TV show on called Castle with uh, uh, Nathan Fillion from Firefly, where he was a writer who kind of hung out with the police and helped them solve crimes. It was a really great show, but what was really interesting about this is in the show he's a novelist who is following along police officers to get ideas for more novels and he had just killed off a main character and was creating a new character based on one of the police officers he was following around 
Well, somebody related to the show decided it would be a great idea to actually write the books that this person, this fictional author in the TV show would have written if he had been an actual real author. So on Amazon, you can buy books by the author, Richard Castle. I don't know who ghostwrites them. I've never found that out. It might be just the writers of the show, but they have a like 10 series about the new character that he was writing about in the show and four books about the old character they'd killed off and even some comic books. They've been, they've been really well received. They're kind of like, thriller mystery novels and the ones before that were sort of spy novels they're sort of a mix of spy thriller mystery novels and it's called the uh nikki heat series and the Derek storm series so if you're looking for a good like it's like the Derek storm to me are what the born novels should have been because i just find the born novels to be crazy boring not the movies i liked but not the novels but so for me, it was like what the Bourne novel should have been was the Derek Storm novels. And a new one just came out. And here it is like years and years and years since the TV series went off the air. So if you're looking for something like that, I highly recommend it. My second pick is going to be because I've been recently spending a lot of time thinking about and dealing with writing emails to large groups of people. I want to pick Chris's uh, email list uh, the Vanilla JS, because it is just a fantastic example of great content that comes to your email inbox. And no matter how many times I don't open up the email, I still find value in the emails, even if I don't get to them because my life is busy. So oh, that's my second final, final pick. Yeah. Nice. A little bit of Google work. I, I found uh, an article that talks about the author of the Richard Castle books. If you're curious, nice. if you don't want to get spoiled, don't read nah, it. I don't need it spoiled. So anyway, but we'll put that in the show notes too. And then if people want to know, they can go check it out. I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. So first of all, last week I went to PodFest, which was a podcasting conference. Um, it was in Orlando, Florida. No, I didn't go to any theme parks. I think my family would uh, disown me if I went to a Disney park or to the Harry Potter thing without them. So yeah, I just flew in, went to the conference, flew out. But it was terrific. Uh, got a lot of great ideas. Definitely going to be changing some things up around how we do the shows and seeing if we can make it better and give people you know, different types of content um, related to the shows. So keep an eye out for things there. Some of it's going to involve having like clips from the show up where people can find them. So you know, if you have a favorite quote from a show, let me know what it is because I would love to you know, put it out there where people can kind of get it and then uh, get involved in the shows. So, um, yeah, I'm going to pick PodFest. And then I also uh, rebooted my personal blog. And I've been wanting to start blogging on devchat.tv for a while. But some of the stuff that I wind up thinking about and wanting to write about and just explore in that way are things that don't relate to development or development careers or freelancing or any of the things that we cover on devchat.tv that usually involves like my political views or personal experiences that, you know, aren't related to you know, running a business or doing the podcast or anything. And so I wanted to put that somewhere else, you know, uh, spirituality is another area that I want to write about, but I don't necessarily want to put on devchat.tv because again, it's just not super relevant to the audience. So I started up a new blog. It's at charlesmaxwood.com. I've had the domain for a while. I've actually had blogs there in the past. And anyway, something happened to the old blog. I'm not even sure what happened to it, but I don't, know, I don't know where any of the content went or anything. It's just all gone. So I started it up again. And uh, Chris will be gratified to know. I, have, I actually used Eleventy on that one. 
I bought a theme off of Theme Forest and converted it over. Um, it was a handlebars theme. It was made for ghosts, so it wasn't a ton of work. And yeah, I'm hosting it on Netlify, so uh, pretty happy there. And I'm going to pick all those things and my personal blog. Uh, Nicholas, what are your picks? Yep, I have two. The first is a book. It's called The Power of Full Engagement. Uh, and it sounds very like consultancy. Uh, that's because it was written by a couple of consultants. But I got a lot more out of the book than I expected to. And their basic thesis is that your body actually works on a 90 to 120 minute cycle energy wise. And that your body really wants periods of rest that are interspersed with periods of activity. And while that's normal for like athletes, you know, they're used to training for big game, play the game, and then they all have recovery routines. The point of the book is that even for office workers and you know, people who sit at desks, managers, so on, uh, it actually makes sense to also get into that habit of you know, work, rest, work, rest. And uh, they recommend that uh, and every 90 to 120 minutes, you just stop, take 15 minutes, take a break, whatever it is, go to the bathroom, get something to eat, go for a walk, go outside, and that you will actually find that you're able to focus better and achieve more after that versus just trying to you know, power through for four hours or six hours or whatever crazy things that we programmers do to ourselves. And that was something that I kind of suspected just observing myself in my career that I tended to really need more frequent breaks. So it was nice to read something that actually said, yeah, there's some research that backs that up. And as always, I'd like to encourage fellow programmers to make sure that you're taking as good care of your body as possible. So taking frequent breaks is a great idea. Uh, and I also wanted to mention that the uh, ES Lint project, which is the linter that I hope everybody is using on their JavaScript, uh, is now raising money for ongoing development and maintenance. Project's been operating just on a volunteer basis for the past six years. And in order to move forward and really tackle some of the things that uh, we as a team feel are important, uh, we need to be able to be doing more than just that. Uh, we're up on opencollective.com slash ESLint, which is a, a fully transparent platform. So you can see everybody who's donating. You can see how the money is being spent. And uh, as a project team, we're all really looking forward to the improvements that we're going to be able to make in the next couple of years. So if you are using ESLint at work, my ask would be if you could talk to, whether it's your manager, your architect, your open source office, your CTO about donating to support ESLint, everybody on the team would really appreciate it. Awesome. Awesome. Did, did I ask you uh, where people can find you online, Nicholas? You did, but I can tell you again if you'd like. Fair enough. Go ahead. Uh, humanwhocodes.com is my site, and you can find me on Twitter uh, at SlickNet. Yeah, that's right. I did ask you because I remember you saying it now. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thank you, Nicholas, for coming on and talking about this. 
hopefully it's uh, good food for thought for some folks and uh, can get them to take action on how they can improve the way that they build web applications. Yeah, thanks for having me back. All right, folks, we will wrap this up and we will catch you all next week. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.